So what we get to do today is go over um, ecclesiology. So that's a fancy, fancy word, uh, meaning just the study of the church. So that's all it is, or the theology um, and you know the theology of the nature and structure of the church. So there's a whole big long thing on ecclesiology, but um, we're going to take just four weeks on that. So you, we could spend quite a bit of time on it. Um, ecclesiology is a, just a really broad field. So I'm looking forward to uh, teaching that, and uh, hopefully you guys ask a lot of questions. So. Let's go ahead and we'll pray here to start this morning. Uh, Father, we're thankful for today and we're thankful for who you are, a God that loves us, cares for us, has redeemed us. Thank you for building your church. Uh, thank you for being the foundation. Um, please help us uh, this morning here glorify you uh, as we study your word so that we can uh, know more of who you are, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so ecclesiology. So that comes from the Greek word ekklesia. Um, some people pronounce it ecclesia or something like that, but it's ekklesia, which basically just means assembly of people. So it's an assembly. So um, we think of church. What do we think of? What do you guys think of when you hear of church? Huh? The people? Yeah? The body? Yeah. Worship? Building? Yeah. So a lot of times it's like, hey, let's go to church. And it's like, well, we think of a building, right? So. A place. A place. Yep. Andy, that's good. So we just have a lot of things. But it just really means whenever you see church uh, in the Bible, it means assembly of people. So they assembled. So Avengers assemble. So, but that's like the, the church um, assembly of God. So um, it's just the people of God. The church is not a building, although we use that a lot. Like this is Newcastle Bible church building, right? So, um, but the people, us, make up the church. So it's a broad field uh, since the church is central to so much of what we do in the um Christian life. So our understanding and theology of the church will dictate so much of what we do. Okay. So as we're going to be studying these next four lessons, you're going to be like, we're going to teach the theology of the church. And you're like, oh, that's why we do what we do. I'm really hoping light bulbs come on because a lot of what we do and different denominations do is going to dictate on what we believe what uh, the church is purpose and what it does and what it is. Okay, so I want to apologize to start off first. I this week did not go well or according to plan, and I did not get a handout. So you guys have a handout that I'm really not going to follow. So, <laughs> but you can. There's some great verses in there. Next week, I'm hoping to have a Lord Willie will have a outline. We don't really need one too much. Um, although it would have been nice to have one here uh, next week. Um, we definitely want to have a, a, an outline of what we're going to do because this lesson is going to be more of um, an introduction, kind of big, broad 
view of what um, ecclesiology is, kind of build some walls about what it is so that you guys are thinking through what it is and the ramifications of it. Then we're going to, next week, we're going to get into what the church is. So we're going to study the metaphors of the Bible on what they have. And we've even heard one, which was what? One metaphor is? We just heard it. Carolyn, you said it. It's the body, right? So a body is a metaphor, and we're going to get in. We're, I, I love using the metaphors of the Bible because it's God's word, and this is the metaphor that God has selected to describe what he is. So we're going to look into the metaphors of the Bible, and then the week after that, we're going to get into the purpose of the church and, um, and what makes a church. And then finally, we're going to talk about the spiritual authority in a church. So that's, of course, elders and deacons. So we're going to go real quick, but don't be afraid to ask any questions. Um, if something doesn't make sense, um, you can spend, we're only going to spend four weeks here. Um, we can, we have some wiggle worm we can uh, spend a little bit more time in, but um, we're going to do ecclesiology. And then after ecclesiology, we're going to do eschatology, which is the study of end times. And it's interesting how much those relate together. And uh, so that's why we're going to do those back to back. Okay. So, so like I said, our understanding and theology of the church will dictate so much of what we do. And you're going to see that in what I was talking about end times. So, or eschatology on, for example, end times you have to know when the church starts. When does the church start? Does the church start at Pentecost? Uh, when the apostles, um, when the Holy Spirit came onto the apostles and they spoke in tongues and everybody was able to hear. So our church believes that um, the church started then, but then there's another um, view where the church started earlier. We're going to get into that. There might be um, your mission, missionology, or how do you send missionaries out? Um, what do missionaries do when they try? To, are they is their goal to plant a church? If their goal is to plant a church, what does a church look like? So, if your view of the church is just well, if two or three believers are together and studying the word, that's all you need for a church, and it's a church, and so you could plant five churches in a year and declare them a church and you've planted five churches so your missionology dictates i mean your uh, you know your ecclesiology dictates your missionology okay could also be your church authority or governance um, we are an elder-led church right but there's also other forms there's congregational churches okay so your understanding of the structure of the church will dictate how you govern your church. And I've been in a congregational church, and I've been in those business meetings where we've discussed 15 minutes about whether we should buy a dehumidifier or not. And it wasn't too fun. But there's also, very, um, there's also some advantages in congregational churches because you have some accountability to your, uh, the elders are held accountable. So what does that look like? And then also something that we don't have are bishops, right? So in denominations, um, you have bishops that are authority. So the elders aren't the preeminent authority in a local church. You have bishops that are above that. And you might have heard recently about the Methodist church. Um, there um, was a big uh, schism in in the Methodist church where a lot in the past year or two have left the denomination. And the Methodist church 
um, as a denomination was actually pretty gracious and didn't make the individual churches pay a lot of money to have their building. So um, there are some, like I know with the schisms that happened in uh, um, Episcopalians, they would lose their entire church building because the bishops and the denomination owned everything. So, so there's a lot of different advantages, but then also what are the advantages of having that denomination? And so, like I said, your ecclesiology dictates a lot of what we were going to do. So our, you can also say our ecclesiology drives our practices. So one preeminent point that I do want to make is that Christ is central in the church, and it's all that, we, and it's everything that we do. So if you go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 3. Um, I'm going to rattle off a whole bunch of verses um, here. And if you guys like to flip through and look them up as, as I read them, please do. If you don't, don't feel like you have to. So 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 11. is according to the grace of God given to me. Oh, so this is um, talking about um, the church um, and what, you know, God's building um, which is God's building is not an actual building. God's building is the people, right? So God uses people to build his church. So he's talking about here in verse 12, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. So that's Paul saying that. And someone else is building upon it. So that's another apostle that's building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is the foundation of the church. Okay? Um, we also know in Matthew 16, 18, that Jesus is um, the, um, he's the builder of the church. That's Matthew 16, 18. Acts 2, 47 um, when he started the church at Pentecost, the Lord added to the number every day. Okay, so the Lord is the grower of the church, or Jesus is the lower of the church. Turn to Ephesians 1, 22, if you want to. So Ephesians 1, 22. Yeah? Yeah? And then they were made a member of the church immediately. Yeah. In other words, that was just natural for us. Okay. I maybe wouldn't work here, but uh, it no. there. So, so it's funny. So what Brother B said is um, in Trinidad, when somebody was saved, they were baptized, and then you were you were immediately made a member of the church. So. We study on the church, but then we would, you know, do that, yeah, yeah, and so and so that's something that um, so being a being baptized is 
uh, an indicator of that is an outward profession of what's happening inwardly in your heart. So baptism doesn't save you, but it does represent that you are brought into um, uh, the household of God and that you are a part of the church. And that's something that our church is trying to move towards. Um, so it's funny that you bring that up. That's something that we haven't traditionally done and we want to move towards. We're going to get into that later on. So I'm glad you brought that up. Um, baptism is, is an important part. Interestingly enough, in my travels in Senegal and Mali and different countries um, that, are, have, that are persecuted, they don't consider somebody, I'm, I'm going to say this correctly. Uh, I have to say this um, carefully, I mean. Um, somebody is not saved when they profess Christ, or they could be saved, but they're skeptical. What they really consider them, like, okay, this, 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 this profession stuck is when they do the baptism. And then that's that indicator, that outward profession that, yes, what they have confessed is true. Not that baptism saves them, not, I'm not saying that, but that that outward profession is meaningful enough that you are accepted in the church. And so that happens in a lot of persecuted churches um, for that being tested in that. So thanks, does that make sense? Okay, so Ephesians chapter one, um, 22 and 23. Another aspect that um, we, that we are, a lot of us are very familiar with is, um, and, he, and then says, and Jesus, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in us. So um, Jesus is the head over all things to the church. So Jesus is the head. And then in the next chapter, in Ephesians chapter 2, 19 through 20, so 19 through 20, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but, and so that's talking about us and the church when we are, um, when we believe and have faith, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So we are a household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. So Jesus is the cornerstone of that building, the apostles and prophets, are the foundation with us being built on that as a household. Okay, so we are the building materials of the household of God. Okay, so that, that picture of that. So laying, we lay that foundation um, of the church with Christ and the apostles. How do we do that? How do we do that? We lay a foundation um, of Christ. We talk a lot about Christ, be Christ, teach Christ. So if we're thinking of us as a church, um, when we assemble here on a Sunday, so we are going to assemble here together in Christ, what do we want to do? We could say we want to preach Christ, we want to sing Christ, um, we want to pray Christ, we want to eat Christ. Well, not literally, right? But that's a little transubstantiation humor there for those who uh, know about Catholicism. So they actually believe in their communion, that communion actually turns into Christ and they actually eat um, real flesh. But we do know that what? The great I am statement of Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. So I am, that's a statement of deity. 
So we do eat Christ in, in the symbolic way that we do with communion because Jesus gives life as bread gives life, right? So what does that mean to do that in, in a church on a Sunday? How do we preach Christ, sing Christ, pray Christ? We could say that. Sometimes we forget, like, how do we, what does that look like? Any thoughts? Yeah, excellent point. So whenever we get together, when two or three are getting together, we need to um, um, just really be mindful and how can we glorify God in that and that looks differently right so it's good Yeah, so, you know, so that, that's excellent. So when we sing songs, we're not just singing, um, you know, sometimes it's, it's fun to sing songs that repeat over and over and over and over again, but you really, you're missing so much potential. So we try and sing songs here at this church that are um, just breathed in the word of God, right? And so we are focused on that and we um, sing that over and over again not the same words, but we sing the word of God, right? Yeah, I think about how the women are studying Psalms right now, and it's like, what was the purpose of the Psalms? It's like, it's that remembrance and reminding you know, that gospel forgetfulness for you know, every day. Yeah. So, so the Psalms are, are, are the songs of the Bible, right? And so wh- where, do, where do we go to in times of trouble or... Uh, in times of praise and how to help us express emotionally what's going on. We go to the Psalms or or we're in such a, a great mood and we're singing praises to God just and or humming, you know, in our mind. What are we doing? We're praising God, praising for what he's done and we're singing God's word. So that's good. Um, I like the context of this text because it says, um, we're not strangers and aliens, but citizens, fellow citizens, and members of the household. And, you know, in our culture that so promotes the word diversity, like Christ is unity. And so we are not strangers and aliens. We are a family. And so family comes together, and we're one, and our unity reflects God's oneness, Jesus' deity, the sufficiency of God in us to make us fellow citizens and one dwelling for God um, through all of our unique spirit-driven gifts with which we serve one another when we are in community. So I think that's 
Yeah, so, yeah, so you, the, if I'm, rem, if I'm summing it up correctly, the, because uh, you had a whole bunch of good points in there, but like the unity that Christ does brings us together as family because there's only one God. There's not multiple gods. There's only one God, um, and we serve him, and we're united by God's word together. So one of those things that just starts with is, God's word, um, and that lays that foundation. Um, and so that's why when we preach, that's why on a Sunday morning, the preaching of God's word is preeminent in what we do, and that's what we start. But not only is preaching of God's word the largest part of it, just every aspect of what we try and do on a Sunday morning is based upon God's word. Um, so that's why we pray God's word um, we sing God's word and we preach God's word. And then that builds that unity, builds up that household of faith because that foundation that's being laid is Christ. And that foundation is not sand, it is rock. It is solid rock. And so that's why we can um, build that up. So I'm gonna put that all together and we're going to go to a very misunderstood passage of Matthew 16. <clears throat> So Matthew 16, 13 through 18. So um, this is where Peter confesses Jesus is the Christ. This is the first time it's at uh, Caesarea Philippi. Um, Caesarea Philippi is an interesting city during Jesus' time. Um, it's a very it was a very rich city, um, but what's unique about it is it had this really big cliff that maybe is a hundred foot tall, and it has this cave that has a spring that comes out of it. Um, and some of you have probably have heard or even seen pictures, but there's all these temples there and idols, and um, so it was very well known as a place to worship idols um, at Caesarea Philippi. So um, this is the first time that um, Jesus is confessed as the Christ or the Messiah, uh, the one that is going to save Israel from their sins. So I'm going to read this here. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Uh, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So let's put that together um, here. What is happening? What do you guys think is happening here? So we know that what happens right off the bat. I talked a little bit about it. So what, what did Peter say? 
that's so significant. Yeah, Jesus is the Christ, okay? So that's significant. So that's understanding of something that who God is, okay? So they are confessing something major, um, and that's significant and giving glory to God in that. And so then off of that, what does Jesus say? He says, my, you know, flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, but God has revealed that to you. And then why does he go in and talking about building the church after that? There's a little play on words here, right? So many of you heard that Peter is Petra, which is rock. Um, and then there's, so you are Peter, you are a rock. And then on this bigger rock, I'll build my church. If Jesus is the foundation, why is, why is this appropriate? Why do you think? So, yeah, Peter's an apostle, right? So, that's good. So, he's like, hey, I'm the foundation. Peter, you're going to be a part of that foundation, right? And building the church on that. But what, So, why is it important that Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ? If Jesus wasn't the Christ, then Jesus would be telling the person to build the foundation. Yeah, exactly. So, then, if your foundation is Christ... Peter's going, Peter and the apostles are going to be a part of that foundation. We are, as the people, the household of God, going to be built on that because we are building materials. And if we keep that um, analogy and that metaphor going, what's going to happen? What, what, did, what promises did God give us? Huh? Yep, a firm foundation built on a rock. Excellent. What are also the promises in here? The keys of the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, so I, he'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, um, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Before that, you know, he also gives another promise. Yeah, the... Yep, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. That is an amazing promise that we sometimes forget about. And the Catholic Church has actually have taken this and they um, did their theology of a pope, that Peter was the first pope, and then they have these big hierarchical um, structure on there. So, and then there's been an overreaction against that. Um, but we don't really have to worry about that because we're not Catholic. So, and so, like I said, a lot of our ecclesiology dictates of what we do. But just to know that God's word is that foundation. Jesus um, came here on earth, um, is the word, and is the word made flesh. Okay? So Christ is the word, is our foundation. If Christ is our foundation, the gates of hell cannot prevail against us, obviously. Right? And the keys of the, and the, keys of the kingdom will be given to us, and whatever we bind on earth which shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. These are amazing promises, and so that's why it is so important when we are um, assembled here as a body of believers 
that foundationally Christ is that foundation for us, okay? And it's so important because we know when we um, put that all together, the church is the way God chose to work, okay? He could have picked anything he wanted. He could have had us do something else. But he put together and he said, the way I want to um, have my name proclaimed and my name be made known and for the believers that follow me and my children to be encouraged is the church. This is the method he, he selected. It's the same way that the way God um, chose for um, people to be saved is through the preaching of the word. Okay, A lot of preachers talk about the foolishness of preaching, the fact that man can speak words and God uses those to, through the Holy Spirit to change them. But that's the method God wanted to use for that. And this is the same thing with the church. Okay, This is the method God wants us to do. And we'll get more into its purposes um, a little bit later. So the main thing to remember is, um, is the preeminence of Christ uh, in the church. Any questions about that? When it says, you're a rock, and I'll build it, build upon this rock, mm -hmm. that's not the rock he's talking about, though, right? The Where? rock, what's the rock that he's talking about? The rock that Jesus is the Christ. That's the foundation. Yeah, so, um, so, the, so we know through through the metaphors and the play on words that are here, Jesus is the foundation, right? But he also uses the apostles and the prof the apostles and the prophets are a foundation as well. But the apostles and the prophets' foundation is not themselves or for their glory. What it is is the apostles and the prophets have been given the words of God, which is Christ, and that's the foundation. And so the play on words is also Peter, um, Peter being a rock. Um, it's also, you can say, maybe even um, possibility of, say, uh, you know, the, um, the place um, in Philippi um, with that big rock there, that cliff face that has all those idols there and the gates of hell. Um, there's a lot of play on words as well that church is the bigger foundation. But there has, you can make an argument there has been, because the Catholic Church uses um, this verse to support their popes, there's been an overreaction of the church at large to where, oh, it's not talking about Peter at all. Um, but we also have to look at rightly at what it's going on is that it's not Peter per se, but it's the words of God that has been given to Peter that builds that foundation. I had read in the Greek that um, that when he speaks of Peter, he uses a word in the Greek for a small stone, and then for then from there he'll build it on Petra, mm -hmm. this larger rock. So and Catholics kind of don't necessarily uh, distinguish between the two. Distinguish, yeah. The one rock. Yeah. So. Yeah. So it distinguishes it. Mm -hmm. So good. 
Okay. Any other questions? Denny? Uh, Kyle, I think another way that people sometimes read this as well is thinking that um, if you look at the church as good and, and hell as evil, that um, that evil will not prevail against good. But when you think about it, when you talk about the gates of hell, of, of hell, the gates are what a city would use to protect it. And so it, it, it's not that good will prevail or that evil will not prevail over the good, but that the good will prevail over evil. Mm. And uh, look at it from that standpoint. It's not just us being protected. It's us winning the battle. Yeah, so so that's that's a good point, Denny. Thanks for making it. Because So what Denny said is like the gates of hell um, are a defensive position. So um, the church will prevail over hell, which... Um, which we do know, and as we get into eschatology, especially in a lot of the imagery um, and the visions that the book of Daniel of that rock um, breaking the feet of the statue and then continuing to grow until it takes over all of it, talking about the kingdom of God. So um, Christ will prevail, and we'll see that in Revelation. So, um, and um, Jesus will take ownership of the whole world. He created it, he redeemed it, and he will reign over it. It's a wonderful promise. Anything else? All right. We're doing good with time. So um, before we get into some of the metaphors next week, there's a few terms that I want to talk about. And um, they can be confusing. So I'm going to go slow. And if you have any questions, please ask. But there's a lot of misunderstandings and terminologies that I really want to really want to hit on. So there's um, the kingdom of God. Have you, you guys definitely heard of the kingdom of God and the church? A lot of people will say the kingdom of God and the church are the same thing. Okay, um, they are not. They are different. So the church um, is 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 the people of God, which we really talked about. The kingdom of God is the reign of God in the world. Okay, so the emphasis is on two different things. So um, we have the church, which is the people of God. The church is the primary means of building his kingdom, right? But it's not the kingdom of God itself. So the kingdom of God's more focus is on the reign of Jesus um, in this world. So we can get... Um, you know, it, it talks a lot about that, like in Acts 8, 12. So it's similar, but the emphasis is different. I don't know how many of you have heard that. So you hear that a lot. A lot of times they're, they're very similar, so it gets um, muddled together. Universal church. Who's heard of the universal church? Does anybody know what that is? Or the Catholic Church, right? Not not the Catholic Church, or I should say the Church Catholic. So Catholic means universal. So that's what Catholic means. Um, so you'll you'll hear the Church Catholic by Protestants, and you're like, oh, no. So all it means is just universal. So the Church Catholic. So the universal church is um, every believer, past and present. So it's everyone who on heaven and earth. So it is, and I've even heard some people say and future. 
So the universal church is every, every believer that God sees. So, and then that's conversed um, with the local church. It's a body of believers in one location. So that would be the local church. So you'll, you'll hear that and you'll see that a lot. So Romans 16 uh, verse 5 talks about a body of believers that met in a one in one house. Okay, and then um, Ephesians chapter five, verse 25 is talking about the church, everybody. Okay, so those are two instances in there. But you'll also hear references of church being talked about not only in a house, but a city, or you might hear it in a region like Macedonia, the church at Macedonia. Um, And then you'll also hear, like I said, um, universal. So it's Uh, the church is talked about in different sizes and different groups. So we have um, also, have you heard of invisible and visible church? You'll hear that a lot. Not so much in our church circles. Um, We don't really talk too much about that, but the invisible church is, is pretty, is pretty synonymous with the universal church. Um, there are different definitions of that. I kind of went down a rabbit hole in invisible, invisible church. So be warned if you guys look into that a little bit more. The visible church, um, so we have the invisible church, which is every believer as God sees them. So is those that have confessed their faith in there. We can't see if you're a believer or not because only God knows the heart. So you have then, but the visible church is what we actually see So here, coming to gay is something that we can see, and it's a visible church. There might be unbelievers in there, um, but the visible church came about mainly in denominations. So if a bunch of local churches came together in one denomination, they would call that a visible church. And also, um, they were having to really think about what did you do with when you baptized infants? which we do not um, baptize infants in this church. Um, We are a believer's baptism. If you were at first service, you got to see three of them get baptized. Um, But we do not baptize infants. But for those that baptize infants, they declare them in the church, even though they have not been justified. And so they're in a quandary. And they're thinking, well, they're a part of the church, but they're not because they're not saved. So then they've come up with this term of visible church to where they're a part of the church, but they're not justified. And so that's why we, you really probably haven't heard it in our circles, but you might run into invisible church and um, visible church. So I don't know, is that clear as mud? So um, that was a, uh, I, I, had, I have heard of invisible church, invisible church. Um, but I went into uh, kind of down a rabbit hole on that. So, but you want to remember that our ecclesiology dictates a lot of our practices and uh, why we do what we do. Um, so it, when you have infant baptism, it, it, uh, it changes things and how you think things through um, for that. So just as a fun exercise here, what, what we want to do is rightly understand the universal church and rightly understand the local church. And we wanna rightly emphasize the universal church and rightly emphasize the local church. So what can happen if we overemphasize the universal church? Have you guys ever thought of that? What could be some problems 
if we overemphasize the universal church to the exclusion of the local church. If you think through that. And like I said, our ecclesiology dictates a lot of our practices. So if we really, so think of maybe some of the churches that think of the universal church, like maybe Anglicans, and they have a Church of England, or maybe Catholic churches. Um, they really emphasize the universal church. What do you think some problems could be? Okay, so power to the wrong body. That's a, so. What do you mean by that? That's a really good point. Okay. That's not what biblical. So you have one person holding a lot of authority, right? Not a lot of um, checks and balances there. Um, and one person can change a whole bunch of churches theology really quickly. What else? That's good. I think then you have people that say, well, I don't really join a church. I'm just part of the new church, right? Yeah, so I'm already part of a church. I'm a part of the universal church. Why join a local church? Which, you know, that bodes well to what we're studying here Sunday mornings, right? So amen to that. So we, so remember, our ecclesiology dictates a lot of what we do. Church governance is so far removed. There's a lack of accountability on an individual level, lack of teaching. Okay. Just thinking of as a Catholic family, and I, I can see that. Okay. Yeah, so all that authority is up there. And so then the authority structure is a lot weaker down here. So you not only do you get weaker authority, you get weaker teaching, right? Because you have less responsibility for your flock. So that could be one. Good. I think it also um, causes you to not have a personal relationship with the Lord because you're relying on those people that are above you. Um, you're okay down here because they're taking care of it up there. And so it kind of knocks out your, your yeah. own personal desire for a relationship. Okay. So, yeah, that's so, so Lisa was saying it's, um, you have, uh, when you have all the authority up high, so far removed from your context, you aren't as connected, right? And so you're not as, um, don't have as much skin in the game, maybe. I don't know. But that's, so, it's good. So, yeah, so a lot of that you'll see when you have weaker elders, um, in the local level, um, because all that authority is going up, um, there's a lot of ramifications from that. And then doctrinal drift, you see that a lot. So those are good. So well, we're going to flip that. What happens when you overemphasize the local church to the exclusion of the universal church? This one might hit a little closer to home. You get ingrown. You end up in a little church again. A what? In a, in a church ghetto, instead okay. of seeing the, 
the work of God worldwide. Yeah, so you're putting up these walls, and it's like this is our church, and this is what we're doing, right? And so you don't see, you don't have as much knowledge of what's going on outside in other churches. So it breeds it breeds arrogance. I remember as a kid, um, we had a church that was very uh, kind of stuck in its own ways and and only thinking that they're the best church. I remember driving when I was a kid. I drove by another church and I was like, "What's that church believe in?" To my parents and my parents were like, "Yeah, they believe such and such, and that's wrong." I mean, they were minor things. And I was like, "Are they are they are they going to heaven?" And my parents go, probably not. <laughs> and it was just something like, I, it, was, it was some little thing. I was like, we laugh about that now. My, my parents don't think that anymore. So. <laughs> so. Self-righteous, yeah. So very, yeah. So big warnings against that in the scriptures about self-righteousness. Help us run our race. So thinking about Hebrews, Hebrews 12. So writer of Hebrews just gets done talking about all these people, all these Christians from all places of all time. And he says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, so in light of all these people from all time, from all places, run their race well, now that's motivation for you to run your race well. So when we have this picture of like, hey, there's more than just us here, we're surrounded by the church universal that can help us, uh, kind of puts us in our place to, mm-hmm. hey, we have motivation, this is not just us going through hard times, or it's not just us laboring for Christ, we have a great body of believers that we're part of this with. Yeah, great point. So Hebrews 11, it's like we have a great cloud of witnesses, and that's our motivation. So when we see others serving together, we get fired up, right? And we want to join in, um, and we're thankful for God's mighty work um, um, all, over, all over this. So a lot of what we see is um, we don't, um, so when you're so local-minded, focus, um, you don't work well with others. You can also, interestingly enough, design um, your own kind of your own tailored mission statements that are really focused and centered. Like we only deal with, um, we only deal in one country or something like that. So we only deal in Ecuador or something like that. So um, we got like three missionaries in in Ecuador, which is great, but we also everywhere. So instead of being open to God's leading, we can really kind of be focused and self-centered in thinking and think smaller, think smaller. It may even perpetuate um, some of the sad divisions we see in the church worldwide and in our history. 
you know, for instance, um, everybody is about the same age, or everyone is the same color skin, or everyone is from this tribe is in this church, and everyone from this tribe goes to that church, and that really mars the picture of Christ is all and in all uh, when we build up walls so high. Yeah, so, um, yeah, so it, it's, it's really easy to build high walls, which is important. So um, we need to have good doctrinal statements, right? So, but we want to um, build those walls. I, I, I like the analogy, build those walls as low as possible so you can shake hands across those walls so, <laughs> and see, see over those. So um, that's a, all analogies break down, but it's just a nice little um, analogy. So another, um, another uh, story to further hit this point is um, in Senegal, uh, we, which we've traveled, to, Diane and I have traveled to a couple of times, um, well, actually numerous times, there's a town called Lingier and another town called Dara. And they are about 50, well, like maybe 25 miles apart, 20, 25 miles apart. Back maybe 60, 70 years ago, um, there was the Baptists and the Lutherans, and the Lutherans took Lingier, and the Baptists took Dara. And, and so they're like, okay, well, we'll work in Dara, and then you guys work in Lingier. The problem is it was one tribe that encompassed both those cities. And so it doesn't teach well the unity of the church and the body of believers when two denominations refuse to work together. And so, um, and I, we understand those differences and you have to be careful because you have to watch doctrinal drift. Um, you have to, and one denomination might be more focused to another, but um, we can get set in our ways and really miss the bigger point of the unity of Christ. So God is one over all. Uh, there is no Jew or Greek, Gentile, but um, we should all work together. So those are warnings there. It's um, multifactorial and very difficult to think through, um, but it's something that we want to strive for. So, so unity as much as we can, um, as long as we try and unite with what the scriptures say and who God is. So any questions about that? So, so good. Okay, the last one, probably the most controversial one, the church in Israel. So I don't know if some of you might um, know quite a bit about that. And we're going to get into this more uh, later on. Who knows about dispensationalism and covenantalism? Raise your hand if you know anything about that. Okay, that's pretty good. So, um, so there's dispensationalism, which is probably 100 years ago, where God moved through different dispensations. So there was the creation dispensation and the noetic dispensation. Um, and then the law came. And so that was a different dispensation. And then Jesus came. That was a different dispensation. And then there's going to millennial reign. That will be a different dispensation. So it's a, a service in the different areas. Then on the other hand, it is covenantal. And um, God moves through different covenants. So there's the covenant um, of Noah, there's the um, old covenant, and then there's the new covenant. Um, but 
And so, and I don't want to get too much into this um, because we got like five minutes. So, um, so what we want to, so we have that. And so there's a strict covenantal and then a strict dispensational. What's interesting is kind of both of those are being rejected and it's, they're moving towards each other. And we have a progressive covenantal and we have a progressive dispensational. So as you, if you try and study this, you're gonna be like, oh, they're all kind of melding together. So um, it's really difficult to try and um, separate those, but it really comes down to um, when do you think the church started? And is, um, is, the church, um, is the church replaced Israel or has the church always existed? So has the church, if the, if the children of God are in the Old Testament and they're in the New Testament, did, um, did the church exist in the Old Testament because we're saved by grace through faith, not a result of works so that no man can boast? So we know from Romans that, um, that you are saved by grace no matter what. And we, we know that from Hebrews 11 that we just referenced that, that you are saved by grace. So if we're always saved by grace, um, and then it's credit to us as righteousness when Jesus come, did the church exist beforehand? And that would be a covenantal position um, of that and making that argument. We at our church are more dispensational and um, we believe that the church started at Pentecost. So that's something that God ordained then when Jesus Christ died on the cross, the Holy Spirit came into every believer and the church started there and built its church in Acts chapter two, okay? So we believe there's a distinction between the church and Israel, okay? So if I've lost all of you, I'm very sorry. Fortunately, we are going to talk about this some more because we have eschatology or the study of end times in the future, but I wanted to give I wanted to kind of give you kind of like a, a little foundation so you're not hearing it for the first time when we talk about it again um, um, later on. So we have this, so we have this point here in um, in um, our time we're in the church, we're at the end times here because Jesus Christ has come again, and we are going to. Um, Christ is going to build this church and um, and that we're really thankful um, for that. So any questions about that in particular? That was probably, um, that was just a really quick update. But if you're like, uh, I have no idea what you said, Kyle, raise your hand. So, <laughs> so um, but yeah, so we, we are, we believe the church has, um, has started at Pentecost, and because the Holy Spirit um, is in us, there's this distinction between um, the church and Israel. So God's made a promise that all of Israel will be um, saved. Um, it is his people. And if you read Romans 9, 10, and 11, there's a distinction made when Paul's talking about spiritual Israel and physical Israel. He's talking about physical Israel that has not believed yet. And um, there's talking about branches um, being cut off, the natural branches being removed. Um, 
but that um, the Gentile branches or the wild branches, which is us, have been grafted on to that vine. Um, and so Gentiles don't get arrogant because he can easily remove us and then graft the, um, the natural branches back on, which is physical Israel. So there's a physical Israel that's still out there. Zechariah makes a lot of um, amazing promises there that all of Israel will be saved. Jesus even talks about he will not come again until, um, until they say, Hosea, Hosea, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, sorry. <laughs> and then, uh, um, so that would be in Matthew 24. So that's why we have, um, so that's why we believe that there is a distinction between Israel and the church. So therefore, our understanding of what happens in the end times is different than what a covenantal um, person would um, say is going to happen in the end times, which we will get into a little bit more. So it's very important that we make that distinction. We believe the church started at Pentecost uh, when the Holy Spirit came and built his church in Acts chapter 2, which we're going to talk about in the next two weeks. So next week, I'm going to hit on the metaphors of what the church is, and then we'll dive into um, the purpose of the church um, for that. Any questions? Real quick, so when you get that, you get that, not just when the church starts, whether or not you, the church, believes that the church has replaced Israel as God's chosen people, that's really part of this conversation. So, yeah. Yeah. So that. So you're talking about replacement theology. So. Um, so there was a. Um, I don't even know if progressive covenantals even. I think they reject that now too. They've realized that that's bad. But where um, that the church has actually replaced Israel. Um, I think they kind of get away from that. Um, so. Um, but yeah. So we're going to get into that too. So. Okay. All right, well, let's close in prayer here. Father, we're thankful for um, your word. We're thankful that you are our foundation, Lord. Let us always remember that. Let us um, sing your glories today. Let us hear your word and be changed and convicted, Lord. We're so thankful that we can trust that you will be our protection, and Lord, and that um, we will uh, have your promises and know that they are true, Lord. Help us strengthen our faith. Lord, you are faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.